Charles Lowry tells a story about a husband and a wife that had reached this impasse in their marriage. They've been married for a long time, but they just, there's a lot of stuff had built up between them. And so they decided that they would go to a therapist, which is a good idea if you've got a lot of stuff built up between uh, you and your spouse. So they go in there and the therapist starts working through uh, their issues session by session. And it doesn't take long for the therapist to realize that the husband in particular has a lot of resentment. And finally he says, you know what my number one problem is? All these years we have been married and she has never, never changed the toilet paper on the toilet paper roll when it runs out. I thought that was a pretty timely story given that we've been in this coronavirus quarantine over these months. Well, the wife says, well, that's, that's insane. Of course I've changed the, the toilet paper when it runs out. Well, he was livid. He jumps up from his chair. He leaves the therapist's room. They don't know what's going on. He comes back. He has been carrying around in the trunk of his car these he black hefty bags just full and when he opens them up and spills them out on the floor, these bags are filled with toilet paper rolls, and each one has a date and time stamp on it. He has been keeping a record for years of every time he changed the toilet paper roll. <laughs> it's pretty easy to keep a list of those things that have hurt us, the ways that other people have harmed us, maybe with not the same neurosis as this guy that he was labeling toilet paper rolls, but we all have this baggage we carry around. And sometimes it gets heavy. We keep a list. We keep track of names so that we know that when the time comes at some point in the future, we can settle the score. And the only way really to get rid of this baggage the only way to get free, to get light, is to forgive. Now, it's easy to talk about forgiveness. It's another thing altogether to actually forgive. No one would have known this better than our friend Joseph. It's impossible to capture the astonishment of these moments in Joseph's palace from our text today. As Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers. This fierce ruler of Egypt, suddenly reduced to weeping and a wailing, he instantly becomes an emotional wreck. He's stuttering out these broken words in their native guttural Hebrew. And this terrifying governor of Egypt reveals himself as Joseph. Gone is the strange dialect of northern Africa. Gone is the harshness and the roughness of suspicion. These all wash away with the tears and with a single sentence. I am Joseph. Well, weeping or not, if these brothers had been afraid of the governor of Egypt, they are now petrified of their little brother whom they stand in front of, like some apparition from the past, like some kind of ghost, like, like a terrible nightmare. The boy dreamer now lords over his brothers just as was predicted years ago. And they recoil. The shock, 
the shame, the fear, it's just too much to bear. And if they hadn't been confined in that palace, they probably would have ran for their lives in that very moment because they don't know what's about to happen. But there's no need to be afraid. Compassionately, miraculously, Joseph greets them not with hate, not with judgment, but with kisses, with tears, Joseph grants the most improbable gift of all, forgiveness. He takes that baggage, that heavy hefty bag full of all those offenses, and rather than pouring them all out in the floor and showing everything wrong that they had done to him, he disposes of it. He won't carry it any longer. No, forgiveness isn't easy. Not for Joseph, not for anyone. Its difficulty lies in the fact that it's not natural. It deprives the one who has been offended, the victim, from achieving what they want, which is vengeance. Forgiveness, in a very real sense, lets the offender off the hook. It sets the offender free without punishment for the sin that they have committed. And this will turn your stomach if you think about it long enough and you think about how some people have harmed you. How can someone who has stolen from you, how can someone who has betrayed you, how can someone who has abused you, How can these people, these crimes, just be forgiven? How can we open the door on this jail cell we hold them in and simply let them walk away? Well, the answer is both complex and simple. Every time forgiveness takes place, the price for that offense is paid but it's paid by the victim instead of the wrongdoer. When forgiveness is granted, the one who has been hurt is saying, I will live with the consequences of what has happened. I will live with this without vengeance. I will live with this without the demand of repayment or settling the score. I will pay this price myself. I will absorb the laws. It is, as Joseph models here, essentially opening up the ledger and marking the debt paid in full and then closing the account. Every time, (coughs) every time someone says, I forgive you, that's the transaction that takes place. Let's go right to the source. When Jesus was on the cross, He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, these words were not spoken in the warm light uh, of hindsight. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is bleeding. Jesus' flesh is being pierced with Roman iron. And he looks out from that hill called the skull, And he looks out over these soldiers. He looks out over this crowd of onlookers. He looks out over the religious 
and the civil authorities that have wrongly put him in that place. And he says, not, I forgive you, though he could have. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think this is key. That in order to forgive, Jesus called on someone outside of himself. And that's so important. An old friend of mine made his living as a revivalist. Uh, not, not, a, uh, not an evangelist, but a revivalist. And uh, he would travel the, the whole North America really working towards spiritual enlightenment. This man's name is Ron Gaynor. And shame on me, I haven't spoken to him in years. And as I was preparing my notes this morning, I actually looked Ron up on the Internet and found him and called his house and left him a voicemail. I hope I, I, I get to hear back from him in the next few days. He's in his 80s now. And uh, for many years, he's been off the road. His sweet wife, Jackie, had a stroke uh, really when he was in the prime of his career. And he came home to take care of Jackie at home. And he told me once, he said, I've had a long ministry, but my ministry now is to take care of Jackie. That's the kind of person that, that Ron is. And as Ron traveled the countryside and he would go into churches and he would lead retreats, his subject was always the same. It was forgiveness. And he'd show up and he's a tall, thin man with a real clean radio voice, but he would speak very softly. He'd, he'd stand up in front of a crowd and he'd say, well, it's good to be with you tonight. Let's, um, let's talk about forgiveness. Man, and people would get mad because they were showing up for a, a revival and what they wanted was that evangelist, you know, the, the fire and the brimstone to uh, preach at the sinners and tell them that heaven is sweet and hell is hot and all those other things, make them feel pretty good about themselves. But Ron would just smile and say, no, let's, let's work on ourselves. Let's... Let's talk about what it means to forgive ourselves. Let's talk about what it means to forgive others. Let's talk about what it means to forgive our image of God, which is probably an idol anyway. He gave me the best definition of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a miracle of grace that God does through us. It is not something we can do on our own. I'll repeat that. Forgiveness is a miracle of grace that God does through us. It is not something that we can do on our own. So if you look to Jesus and Joseph as examples of forgiveness, their leadership inspiring us to follow suit, then we have captured only half of the forgiveness story. The source of their forgiveness is the more essential matter. They could forgive because they left their situation, to quote the Apostle Peter, in the hands of God who always judges fairly. If there is any chance of forgiving those who have hurt us, it will be because God has worked a miracle of grace within us. Rather than trying to muster up forgiveness on our own, 
which we're truly incapable of doing. It is the better choice to ask God to do it for you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we are back to this elementary, super simple, singular act of faith. And that act is surrender. Let God do within you, for you, and through you what you cannot do for yourself. Because if you tuned in today to listen to this, knowing that the subject was going to be forgiveness, and you thought, I'm going to figure out how I can do that, you probably can't. Minor offenses, yeah. Offenses that take a couple days just for it to blow over, or a couple weeks, yeah. But those hard places, those deep wounds, God has to do that. A childhood Sunday school hero of mine was Corey Ten Boom. And Ten Boom lived all the way up into the 1980s. She and her family were Dutch Christians. And they hid Jews in their home during the Second World War. And there was always a half dozen to ten people hiding in their house beneath false floors and behind false walls. Her memoir is a book called The Hiding Place. I read it when I was very young. It's a Christian classic. And this book talks about how they hid people that were on the run from the Nazis. And the book also tells the tale of how they were betrayed into Nazi hands. And the entire Ten Boom family was scattered across the German Empire into different uh, concentration camps. Corey and her sister Betsy went to Ravensbrück. And when the war was over and everyone returned home, Corey Ten Boom was the only member of her family that survived. Corey came out of that awful experience saying this. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. God will give us the love to be able to forgive our enemies. (laughs) Easy to say. Harder to do. A few years later she was put to the test. These are Corey Ten Boom's own words. From the late 1940s, five or so years after the war had ended. I had come from Holland back to defeated Germany with the message of forgiveness. I was in a church in Munich when I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. He came up to me and he said, You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. Corey says, he did not remember me, but I recognized him. The guard says, the former guard says, since that time I have become a Christian. I feel that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did. And now Fraulein, And extending his hand, he asked, Will you forgive me? Corey Ten Boom. I stood there, and I could not. My sister had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? 
It seemed like hours passed as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, the coldness clutching my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I said to myself. I can do that much. And so woodenly, mechanically, I lifted my hand and thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. This healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I said, I forgive you. And I have never known God's love so intensely as in that moment. (laughs) Well... I don't know about you, but I know me. And beneath this seemingly more or less respectable frame, there is a murderous animal. (laughs) I would not be able to do that on my own. I would not be able to do that unless, unless some kind of divine spirit so possessed me Some heaven-sent grace so overwhelmed me that it was not me doing it, but a power greater than myself doing it. So it goes something like this. We suffer a loss. We suffer offense or harm. And this hurt that we feel is legitimate. But rather than responding with revenge or resentment, we respond with grace. And if that happens, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, that grace to do that is from God. Not from us, but from outside of us. As we pass the love and grace we have received on to somebody else. So if this will be our experience, we have to let God do it. Get out of His way. Don't try harder. Don't do more. Just let it go. Just put out your hand, an empty hand, and let God's love, the very love you know for yourself, the love that you have experienced, let it out to flow to others. And the more you get of this love, the more you understand God's love, the more you can give it away. That is so key. Get to know God's love for you, and there's no way that it cannot spill on out to others. And when it does... It's obvious that something natural is at work. Supernatural is at work. It's natural to hold a grudge. It's expected to want to even the score. It's customary to seek vengeance. It is human. Truly, to err is human. To forgive is divine. The parent who abused you the church leader who betrayed you, the corporation that stole your retirement, the spouse who broke his or her vows, the child who abandoned you, the stranger who stole something precious from you, the person who so violated you, who so humiliated you that you dare not even whisper it to another person. Your choice is to hold them in that prison of your own making And it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of guarding and it takes a lot of maintenance to keep that cell and to keep them there. Or by God's grace, you turn the key and you set them free 
and find that the prisoner set free is also yourself. Now, it won't happen in a moment. Our resistance is too strong. It's not going to happen in minutes because our sense of grievance is too strong. It might take you weeks. It might take you months. It might take you years. It might take you decades. That's Joseph's story. But by heaven, he eventually got there. And finally, all was made well. All manner of things were made well. Because that's what time and grace can do. Last story. As a young man growing up in Palestine, Yitzhak Rabin only wanted to be an irrigation engineer. And when you live in the desert and you want to be an irrigation engineer, it's a worthy ambition. Water is more valuable than gold. The outbreak of World War II changed his plans, changed his destiny. He entered the Israeli military and he reached the highest levels of leadership in the young Jewish state. Surrounded by enemies, Rabin learned to deal quickly and fiercely with his adversaries. He brilliantly engineered key military victories in the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, the Six-Day War of 1967. Later, he was defense minister, and he would react with customary harshness against Palestinian demonstrators, ordering ordering that the military policy of the time be one of, quote, beating and breaking the bones of the Arab citizens. By the time Rabin became prime minister of Israel for a second time in the early 1990s, though he had changed, He concluded that no people could be ruled by force. And he candidly spoke to his nation about forsaking this siege mentality and this state of war that had been such a part of their collective identity. And he adopted a radical policy of reconciliation and peace, choosing to treat those who were once his enemies as human beings instead. This old warrior who had fought the enemy for almost 50 years, entered into secret negotiations with the PLO to reach an arrangement of peace. That agreement is now called the Oslo Accords. It was officially signed on the South Lawn of the White House September 13, 1993. I was driving down the road that afternoon of the signing, and I heard Rabin's historical speech And I pulled over on the side of the road because I'm a nerd and I wrote down his words on the back of a napkin. Rabin in part said this. Let me say to you, the Palestinians, we are destined to live together on the same soil in the same land. We, the soldiers who have returned from battles stained with blood, we who have seen our relatives and friends killed before our very eyes, we who have attended their funerals and cannot look into the eyes of their parents, we who have come from a land 
where the parents bury their children, we who have fought against you, we say to you today in a loud and clear voice, enough blood and tears. Enough. When all the speeches were made and the signatures put on the document, Rabin stood there facing Yasser Arafat, his bitter enemy of decades. And Rabin squirmed and he hesitated. Then he swallowed hard. He had a pucker in his brow and he reached out and he took Arafat's hand in his own. And he said later, of all the hands in the world, that was not the hand I ever dreamed of touching. For those efforts, Rabin won a share of the 1994 Nobel Peace Prize. But not everyone was happy. Two years after peace was made, Rabin gathered with hundreds of peace protesters in Tel Aviv for a peace rally. He was still prime minister. And afterwards, after giving a speech and visiting with the peace activist, activist, he was walking toward his car and he was fired upon by one of his fellow countrymen, a young Jewish radical so committed to his hate and so opposed to peace that he chose to assassinate the broker of that peace. Yitzhak Rabin died minutes later and pulled from his shirt pocket was a blood-stained piece of paper, a piece of paper that recorded his last publicly spoken words. He had quoted a Jewish protest song from the 1960s entitled Shir La Shalom, A Song for Peace. 